standing on your faithfulness on your faithfulness I'm calling on the God Mary whose favor rests upon
with me this morning. Father, so many times we come into this place and we sing these songs of worship. And Lord, our hearts are lifted. Our minds are taken to the good things you've done for us, Lord. And the joy that we feel in having a relationship with you and the joy that we feel in being in this place, Lord, that is so full of love and of your spirit and of your presence. And Father, we're grateful today for what we have. Father, we come into this place this morning not just for those good feelings, but Lord, for the truth of being in relationship with you. We sing the words, I will build my life on your love. It's a firm foundation. God, all singing and, and lyrics aside, that's what we want this morning. Lord, we want to base every single part of who we are on the foundation of your love and what that means in the world we live in, what that means in the world that we interact with, when we go to work, when we go to school, Lord, in our neighborhoods, most especially in our households. We want to build ourselves on the foundation of your love. So, Father, this morning as we come and as we sing and as we gather and, and enjoy each other's company and presence, Lord, may we truly understand that we're here this morning to hear from you, to understand what it is you would say to us, even if that understanding is something that carries us into this week, Lord, even as your words this morning speak to us now and speak to us in the coming days. Father, we want everything we do this morning to be built on the foundation of your love for us and your love for everyone. Thank you for this time. Thank you for what we have. Thank you for who we get to be because of you and because of this love. Lord, continue to speak through us and move in and amongst us this morning. It's in your name we thank you and praise you. Amen. You may be seated. We began a conversation last week from the idea of thirst. And thirst, we know well, is that dry sensation that we get in our throats or our mouths. It's often associated with this desire for liquids of some sort. It's, it's a bodily response, if you will, to ultimately dehydration. God created us intentionally, and he knows what he's doing, and within us he put these basic instincts that we have and responses that we then go through when we need something. We not even realize what we need, but God knows better than we do and at the basic level of life, what we need in our physical bodies is this fluid balance. Uh, there's water that's going on throughout all of our bodies. There's these transactions that's occurring with water. Water's used to move things in between cells. We need water in order to survive. And your body knows that. So when we need it, the thirst then manifests itself to where we have to respond. Uh, there's also this intransitive, if you will, idea of thirst where there's this desire or craving for something else in life. And we readily understand what being thirsty means. We desire something either to drink or, 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 or to meet a need in our life. It's the body crying out, recognize there's not enough water for the normal bodily, bodily functions to continue. Sometimes we, we in, in the midst of dehydration, if you will, we see the symptoms of this. It in headaches or cramping or kidney function. Too much water can lead to problems on our hearts and our lungs. When we're out of balance, our bodies have a really good way of letting us know. We're going to talk about balance today, and more than just through our physical bodies, but also our spiritual bodies. What are we thirsting for today? We can be out of balance in many different ways. And this leads to other thirsts, be it in our relationships or fulfillment in our life, or, or finding purpose or meaning. All basic instincts that God put there that would prompt us to drink in. What we think or believe or know will satisfy our thirst. So water is that thing that physically quenches our thirst. It's what our body needs. But not all water is fit to drink or is safe or even pure. And if contaminated, uh, the very thing that we're drinking that was meant to help us could actually bring harm. When I was in college, I was a lab assistant uh, in, in chemistry and biology labs, and, and we had to... Uh, use certain kinds of water for the experiments that we would use or go through. And you may not realize this, but in the science world, there's actually three different types of water. And we didn't typically use tap water because tap water would bring inherent chemicals or different types of reactions that maybe we didn't want to see. But the most basic part, the most basic type of water we used was called type 3 RO water, row water, which typically just means reverse osmosis. So it's a process we take water through that and which is created and we end up with this very basic kind of water you could use for cleaning 
just uh, general lab work. But then there's type 2, which is a more purified form of water. It would be used for some basic level experiments, maybe some prepar preparations of some mediums. It had a high level of purity. But there was even one above that called type 1. And type 1 is ultra pure water, pure water basically in its purest form. Uh, chemically, this is important, so there'd be no competing elements or reaction. That's what you would typically want to do your experiments with, was type 1 water. Now, for the most part, we don't go out and buy type 1 water. It's a specialty water. You, you can get it, but it's not easy to get. But you can buy type 2, although the most prevalent is type 3. And I have in my hand right here just a bottle of water. It says purified drinking water. And if you turn the label, it says purified by reverse osmosis. That's not a, a, I'm not going to explain what that means to you today. But this is RO water. This is real water, type 3, that you could get in a lab. But it's also sold as purified drinking water. So there's different ways that water shows up in our lives. And, and, and you could buy distilled water. Distilled water, you may or may not know, is just water that's boiled down, if you will, boiled out, and the vapor is recondensed and recollected in another container, leaving the impurities or, or the heavy things, the things that don't boil at the same temperature as water does behind, kind of, in essence, leaving things behind but giving you a more pure form of water. I, there, there's artesian water. That, might, that sounds real fancy in French, right? But it's just, just, just another word for groundwater, water that comes out of the ground. Uh, it, it's kind of a natural water. Some type of spring water would be artesian water. You can even buy something fancy now called alkaline water, where they change the pH of water. And, and there's a reason for this. The body typically tends to gravitate to, towards being acidic in nature. So by increasing the pH to around 8 or 9, and we won't get into that either. You, in essence, make water into a base. So when you ingest the base, it helps bring a little bit of neutrality into the body. It's thought to strengthen the immune system. There's no shortage to the variety and accessibility of water in our lives. You can find water that fits whatever tastes you may have. I was at a local grocery store this week, and I saw on the shelf, in, in a big gallon jug, drinking water from a municipal source. Let me repeat that. Drinking water from a municipal source. You understand what that is, right? Tap water in a gallon jug at your grocery store. And there wasn't just a small section. This was a large section of water, which tells me they probably sell a lot of that stuff. People thinking they're going home with something pure or clean, no different than what they could get out of their own tap. Now, personally, I don't really like to drink water. If I do, I like to flavor my water. Don't judge. Uh, I recently saw an additive that you could put in your water, flavor your water, that says, we fix water, as if water is somehow broken. <laughs> Purified water is so readily available to us, it's undoubtedly something that we take for granted. But I've had the opportunity over the years in my life and in ministry to be part of and to support clean water projects, either in missions or in ministry. And we have a young man in our church who I want to invite him to come forward now, who has an opportunity to go here in the next few months uh, overseas to, to a different country to literally fix water for those without access to clean water. So I've invited Gage to come up and share a little bit about what he has coming in his life here in just a few few weeks, few few, few months. So Gage, yeah. tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing. Uh, so I will be going to Guyana in South America through MVNU. And uh, just wondering, how many MVNU grads or current students we have here today? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, we got quite a few. So, um, yeah, in Guyana, we are going to a rural town called Aurelia. <clears throat> and in Aurelia, we will be installing water filtration systems, providing meals, and working with the pastor to actually um, talk about the importance of water to the community. Uh, because water is a is a very interesting topic there. Aurelia actually has one of the highest drowning rates in South America. And so they kind of deal with both sides as they don't have clean water and uh, many people have died due to drowning. Um, but another thing we would be doing is providing health examin examinations there for the community. And so, yeah, we're very, or I'm very excited. What made you decide this trip? So obviously Mount Vernon offers a lot of different opportunities, but what about Guyana uh, did, did God speak to you about being involved? Uh, yeah, well, in general, I just feel like um, 
my relationship is God, with God has been growing, and uh, he's kind of been asking me to take, you know, a bigger step in uh, maybe a place where I'm not so comfortable. Uh, but Guyana kind of stuck out to me uh, as I'm a health science major going into the health field. Um, it was a way to just kind of put my abilities and knowledge to the test a little bit as we will be doing health examinations and uh, just working with a lot of disadvantaged people there. So, What I love about this opportunity for you, it's, it's, there's a spiritual element to it, but there's also the practical elements. You're leaving something behind that will have a lasting value, probably life-changing impact on people you may not ever get to meet. That's the beauty of the family of God. Hopefully someday you will get to meet them in heaven and get to share the stories and the impact you've had then. So thank you, Gage. So we have an opportunity to support him, to, to help him. And it doesn't, uh, it's not like going down to Columbus, to going to Guyana costs a little bit of money. And I know we've been asking for money a little bit lately here in our church, but this is an opportunity for us to continue investing. You've invested in this young man his whole life. Now we have an opportunity to help him take that next step. I was joking with him and his parents earlier. We're going to help at least raise enough money to get him down there. Now, whether he gets back or not, that's up to your faithfulness and your generosity as well. So uh, you have opportunities. You can give online. You can give, give through your normal giving. Uh, if you do choose to support, just, just write Gage, Gage and Guyana. We'll make sure it gets to the right place. But we're looking forward to hearing the stories, not only now, but what God's going to do in your life and through your ministry team in the days ahead. So Thank you, Gage. So, very good. Those are exciting moments, and we look forward to continue investing and hearing our, 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 the opportunities that we have to invest in others as God sends us out. This idea of, of pure water, uh, of, of bringing life. And that's what we find ourselves in Lent right now. This is ultimately a conversation about life. As we thirst for things, we have this opportunity to experience life as God intended it, as Jesus comes to, to, to reveal. And during this Lenten season, we're using water, or the idea of living water, the different water passages that we see in the Gospel of John, to teach us more about Jesus, the difference he makes, the life he came to give, and the thirst that he came ultimately to quench. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, we see this prophetic verse about Jesus Christ, and the prophet says, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. Jesus comes to be that living water for us. And we, we see that shown in a very fresh and new way in John chapter 1, and, and we, we, in this very beginning of John's gospel, uh, we see that John explaining that the word became flesh. That's his, that's his version of, of the birth of Christ in the story. But then John jumps right to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, uh, this account, people are asking, are, are you the Christ, John? Are, are, are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? And John has to kind of explain who he is and what he's doing. Now, he baptizes with water, but there's one coming after him whose sandals he's not fit to tie. And, and John's kind of preparing the way then Jesus shows up, John sees Jesus, comes and says, there he is. That's the guy. That's the one you want to be looking for. That's the one who's coming to take away the sin of the world. It's a mighty strong proclamation for John to make in the wilderness. We see Jesus then call his first disciples. Two of them were John's disciples. They turn and follow after Jesus. And, and then shortly after, there's two more who join. So in this early moments of Jesus' ministry, we know there's at least four disciples. We're not sure if there's more at this point or not, but we know of four then we read on the third day, so there's this, this all happens within a few short days of John the Baptist's interactions, Jesus coming and showing up, Jesus calling disciples. And on the third day, we read in John chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus gets invited to a wedding. It's a curious way to begin the gospel. Jesus going to a party, so to speak. And we read in verses 1 and 2, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, Cana was a village best thought to be about nine miles north of Nazareth, so within relative walking distance of where Jesus was from at this time. Jesus' family and those he's called to follow, they were, they were among the guests. They're on the guest list. They've got a seat at the table, and they're invited to this wedding, and weddings were big community celebrations. They were gala-type events. So here's these brand new four disciples, and the first thing Jesus tells them is, go put on your tuxedo, because we're going to a wedding. And they travel the nine miles north, or they're already in Galilee. They show up for this wedding in, in, in Cana. Things are going well until we get to verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. That's quite a jump in the storyline. To go from calling disciples to, to attending a wedding to, to, to Mary just kind of going to Jesus saying, hey, they're out of wine. Kind of a big shift. 
Now, but we need to understand some things that go on in the midst of these celebrations. See, hosting a wedding came with expectation. It would be seen as a bad host, and it was grounds for social disgrace if you didn't meet the expectations. Now, small communities didn't need Reddit or Yelp or Facebook to shame those who were not able to adequately provide for guests. That was done mouth to mouth. If you found yourself to be inadequate to, to meet the obligations, the expectations of your celebration, this would be a cause for family shame. It would never go away. We know that in Scripture we see people named by attributes and by the way they behave or what the things that they do. Your family would be forever known by failing to meet a simple obligation that came associated with a wedding. Now, we don't know the family connection, but, but there must have, been a, a, must have been somewhat significant because Mary is the one who responds to this significant concern. Mary's got an answer. I'm not sure what Mary knows or what she's seen Jesus do or what she's aware of, but she hears about this need about running out of refreshments. She knows this about reputation. She cares about their hosts, their community standing. They must have been close to Mary. So Mary goes to Jesus. Hey, this is, there's a problem here. They have nothing left to drink. Jesus' response in verses 4 and 5 might seem a bit harsh to us. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. Woman, why do you involve me? This is not my problem. Now, we might think that Jesus responding to Mary with, with this term woman is, is impolite, but actually it was a very polite way in this culture to speak to his mother. We actually see Jesus use the same response two other times. We will see it two more other times in our Lenten conversations. The Gospel of John shows five instances where Jesus spoke, speaks to women in this way. He wasn't speaking down to, but rather he was lifting them up, respecting his mom. But he had a very serious question. Why, why are you coming to me about this? This isn't why I'm here. Not just here at the wedding, but this is not why I'm here. God's got a much bigger plan he's working out. My time, my hour has not yet come. As if she's trying, I don't think she's intentionally trying to speed things up or, or get in the way of God's plan. She's just responding to a need that's in front of her. And Jesus says, Mom, what are you doing? My hour is not here yet. Other translations use the set of hours, use the word time. And it speaks to this Greek word kairos. And kairos means the time, like the event. This is the moment. And this is kind of an eschatological statement. Eschatology speaks to the last days, or understanding of last days. What John is introducing to us in this, this conversation with Jesus and his mother helps us understand and, and view the gospel through the lens of the Messiah, pointing to the real moment when, when God will be fully glorified through Christ. It seems so incidental, perhaps even insignificant, but this conversation is helping us understand that God is up to something big. But Mary, she does what mothers do. Here's Jesus' question, doesn't answer him. Instead, turns to the servants and with some level of authority, tells them, and at the same time tells Jesus, just do what he tells you to do. That's her way of saying to Jesus, you're going to do something. You're going to respond to this. These people matter to us. And by all accounts we get it, she kind of walks away. You read in verse 6, nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now the detail in this one verse that John includes, verse 6, tells so much more than we often realize. See, these stone jars, they were used with the intent of making someone uh, clean or pure. It was a ritual. Uh, it, it was thought to be used simply for washing hands before eating or washing hands after touching something that would be impure. These stone jars were kept, were used to keep the water ritually pure. Clay jars could not be used, because clay jars were thought to allow for uh, impurities to be transferred through the clay. Stone, though, water couldn't pass through or soak through the stone. The number and the size of those jars seems to communicate that this was a family of status and wealth. To, to be looked down upon because of and, and not being able to provide for your guests would have been a significant blow to them. We've got these jars. There's six of them. They're big. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Fill the jars with water. Now, we, we know by there being six, or it would have held at least 120 gallons, perhaps even up to 180. We're going to assume for our conversation today, they held 150 gallons of water. Jesus said, now draw some out and take it to the master. 
150 gallons of water would have been enough to provide for 4,000 servings. 4,000 drinks. Now, to fully understand the magnitude of what's happening, we need to realize that when wine was made in Jesus' day, it was made differently. It was made fully concentrated. It was not diluted. But when it was served, it would be diluted typically by three parts water. So you, you would take a scoop and you would add three cups water, kind of like making Kool-Aid. You just kind of water it down and then kind of spun it out. Or lemonade, whatever your, your, your drink might be. You kind of water it down to, to where you get to the point where you like how it tastes. What this means for us is that 150 gallons uh, of water or wine could be watered down to make 600 gallons of acceptable wine. 600 gallons would equal approximately 16,000 servings. So this is just the first part to fully understand what Jesus is doing. Jesus doesn't just meet the immediate need. He responds in abundance. He doesn't just kind of, well, just get him by for a few days. He's going to over-provide, leaving questions behind. But the only ones who immediately are aware of it are the servants, Jesus' disciples, and Mary. This is certainly something that you would talk about. It would surely let others know what's happened. But then another worry takes over before the questions can even begin to be asked. In verses 9 and 10, the servants did as Jesus commanded, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He then called the bridegroom aside. So instead of asking them, where did this come from? He goes to the groom, says, everyone brings out the choice wine first. This is the cheaper wine. And then the, then the cheaper wine, after the guests have drank too much, you've saved the best till now. That could also lead to questions about us being good hosts. Funny how there's always questions in life that bring us back to focusing on ourselves. We've all heard the adage, we save the best for last. <laughs> Not in this instance. You start with a choice, and then you, when the celebration wears on, you bring out the not-so-good stuff. But in this moment, at Jesus' instructions, the mater d' takes a sip. Instead of relief, continues his worry. He recognizes that this is the best. And on one hand, there's no longer a shortage. This is just not how things are done. How might this reflect on the family? And well, we won't really know what happens next because there aren't any more details that John provides for us. But what we do know is sufficient spiritually. Jesus has given enough, more than enough, and Jesus has given the very best. And for us, that's our takeaway. He's always enough, and Jesus is always the best. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. We go back to John chapter 1. And, and we know that two of the disciples that are following Jesus were John the Baptist's disciples. And, and we see Andrew runs to his brother Peter. says, Peter, you've, you've got to come and see this guy that I've met. We have found the Messiah. And so, so we know that they believe that Jesus is someone significant. And then <clears throat> Jesus calls Philip to follow after him. And Philip goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. Nathaniel, you've got to come follow me. We, we have found this man who, who is incredible. And you want to follow after him. <coughs> Excuse me. And Nathaniel says, well, what, what good could come out of someone from Nazareth? And Nathaniel comes and, and Jesus says to him, we're going to see even greater things than what you've seen already, Nathaniel didn't take very long for Jesus to show Nathaniel greater things. His disciples believed in him. Jesus stated to Mary, this isn't my time yet. But we still see Jesus use this opportunity. Other translations read, these new disciples put their faith in him. And while they still had much to learn, much they still didn't understand, they were convinced Jesus was different. Jesus was quenching in them a thirst that they had deeply felt for so long that nothing else could quench. They were waiting on this promised Messiah. And, and here comes this man from Nazareth. And he's beginning to, to do things differently. And they're, they're seeing things differently. And they realize he's quenching something deep within them they didn't even know was there. The purpose of this first reported miracle of Jesus isn't stated for us, by Jesus or by John. But there are clear takeaways for us. Jesus came to bring new life. His ministry was about conversion, water into wine, sinners into followers, into disciples. And Jesus uses jars of water uh, used to wash the outside as a symbol of purity to illustrate the transformation he desires to make on the inside. 
literally wanting to change the chemical structure of water within us, giving us living water, transforming what is dead within us into life that we find in him. You will see greater things, Jesus tells Nathaniel. This is just the beginning. He's just getting started. And the Gospel of John helps us see the greater things in a different way. So as we begin this Lenten season, this journey through John's gospel, I want us to see Jesus differently, in a fresh, new way. Through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are known as what we call synoptic gospels. Uh, And while there are differences in them, the word synoptic means uh, to see together with a common view. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they cover the same events in Jesus' life in much the same order. Each probably written within 20 to 30 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, and what we, where we see the similarities as we study them, we recognize they're pretty substantial. Nearly 90% of what you read in the Gospel of Mark is found in the Gospel of Matthew. And almost 50% of Mark appears in Luke, which tells us that Matthew and Luke were using Mark's Gospel as source material. All of the parables of Christ, all the teachings, the stories that Jesus would use to teach lessons, are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Gospel of John does not contain parables. Now, the Gospel of John is different in other ways. John wrote his gospel approximately 60 years after the other gospels. After the fall of Jerusalem, the temple has been destroyed again. The sacrificial system of redemption has been taken away from the the Jewish people. And this is a time when Christian persecution was severe from Jews and from Romans. So John's gospel is written at a time when when not just Christianity is under attack, but Jewish culture is under attack. There's this, this dispersion, and he has a different purpose for writing it. It's to address the false teachings that's beginning to arise. It's to evangelize to a scattered Jewish and Christian people. And John is seeking in his gospel to bring clarity to who Jesus was and is. So we read it differently because it's meant to convey a different message. And this first miracle that's not recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke might seem innocuous, but it's very important to the big picture because in it is the beginning of a new revelation. Six stone jars used to wash away impurities. Impurities are always are not always the same as sin. While both can separate us from God, <clears throat> impurity in Scripture is what prevents us from entering into the presence of God, from entering into holy spaces. You could be made impure by contact with certain food or blood or, or, or with birth or death. We, we recognize that. We know in our culture, health from a health perspective, we touch dirty things, we need to wash our hands. We understand that now. They didn't understand that then. So God was protecting him in many different ways, saying, you can't enter into my presence if you're impure. So these routine parts of life, God was using not only to protect people, but also to help them become positioned and postured to enter into his presence. Does that mean I can't enter God's presence if my hands are dirty? No. It goes much deeper than that. Cleansing, though, from impurities is something that we choose to do. And this is what John is trying to communicate to us, I believe, through this first miracle. We choose to live life in such a way that we can enter into sacred, holy spaces, into God's presence. This is the goal of purification, the very presence of God. And for us, that's what this Lenten season will be about. Purifying ourselves, choosing to attend the party with Jesus. Obediently following his directions. Obedience had to be done in order for the water to be turned to wine. We need to be obedient even when it doesn't make sense. Positioning and posturing ourselves to experience the presence of God. Jars were empty. They first had to be filled. They were waiting to be used. Jesus then transformed what was inside. Are you empty this morning? Waiting to be filled, waiting to be transformed? We first have to present ourselves, make ourselves available. We didn't have to be obedient. It was necessary for the miracle to be realized. When all of these pieces come together, then we will see transformation. We'll see abundance. And we'll see Jesus' best in our lives. This is why he came. That we wouldn't have to drink some flavored, store-bought, trendy water. That we would have access to the living water. Pure water. This bottle, I like it. It's just just generic store brand. I won't tell you which one it is. I'm not getting paid to name drop or 
product place, so we'll just kind of keep it generic. The label says purified water for your thirst. And that's what I want each one of us to experience this season. Jesus has come to offer us something pure for our thirst, to quench that thing in us that maybe we can't define. This, this season, these next few weeks are an invitation to, to a much bigger party that now Jesus is inviting us to come to. A different wedding, if you will, that he's inviting us to be part of. He is the bridegroom. We as his church are the bride. It's a party where there will be abundance, where, where they will never run out, where there will be transformation, where we will experience the best. We started with Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. That's where we end today. An invitation to come, all who are thirsty, the living waters that Christ offers to us. I want you to stand with me this week, and, or this week, you can stand with me now. You can stand with me this week too, but go ahead and stand now. And the next time you go and you hold a bottle of water, or you take water from your municipally sourced tap at home, I hope that you'll look at it a little bit differently. Recognize what God's inviting us to be part of. See what Jesus came to allow us to do, to step into the very presence of God. How Jesus, through his life, models for us what that looks like. The difference he can make. The abundance that he offers. What the best really looks like. Father, I pray for your people today. I believe that so many here in this place this morning are thirsty. They may not even know what they're thirsting for. So we begin by just offering ourselves as empty stone jars. Maybe we need to allow you to fill us first. Others, Lord, are filled. They're, they're ready for you to do something in their life. They're waiting for you to transform them from the inside out, from their heart forward. God, continue the work in us that you have started and that you've come to do. For others, God, maybe they've just settled in life. They're okay with the impurities. They're all right being separated from you. And they've just resigned themselves to the things in life that are impure. God, the best is being offered to us. Why would we settle down, settle for a diluted, watered-down product? We have a chance to experience the best that we find in Jesus. So Lord, challenge us. Speak to us. Invite us. Lift us up. Encourage us, wherever we might be. Each one of us in some way is thirsty today. May we find fulfillment in you. May we only look to the living water to quench that thirst that's within us. God, thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray today. Amen. God bless you. Go enjoy living water today. Have a great day.